Welcome to Chris Judd's Masters of the Market, a podcast giving everyday investors access to some of the best and brightest minds in the Australian investing landscape. Today's episode is brought to you by Think Markets, the trading platform where you could trade Forex, shares, CFDs, indices, and commodities. Today I sit down and have a conversation with Rob Frost from OC Funds Management, the microcap specialist that take a value-based approach. Rob runs us through his investment philosophy and why he only invests companies that are in his area of expertise. Rob Frost, welcome to Masters of the Market. Uh, thanks very much for taking the time to have a chat. Pleasure being here with you today, Chris. Now, a lot of the guys I'm speaking to, I, I look through their, their history and, and their buyers and uh, who their, their big influences were on their investing. Mm-hmm. It looks from yours that one of the biggest influences on you was your grandma. Very good. You've done your research. Talk me through what you learnt from, uh, from your grandma about investing. So when I was a young man, Chris, I used to go around there and my nana used to always have the paper out and she'd have a ruler and, um, you know, she, she, she didn't work. She was, a, she was a housewife all her life, but she, she was a very successful investor. And I guess her frame of reference was growing up in a depression. So she was very conservative. She used to buy blue chip shares, yeah. um, think the banks, you know, CSL. And back in those days, you know, those share prices um, accumulated quite a lot. So she did very well out of it over the years. So, um, you know, I guess that's where I first got my exposure to the share market. And what age did you buy your first stock? I bought my first stock. Well, that probably is a good segue into my godfather was also a stockbroker back in the 80s. So a couple of the um, smaller brokers around town, he was um, the MD of a couple of them. He was probably at the other end of the market, so he was involved in the more speculative mining, um, you know, oil and gas, did a lot in oil and gas actually, and yeah. he got me interested and in, invested in a couple of those sort of more speculative companies, so I guess I probably bought my first shares, I think it was Ashton Mining, which was um, owned the Argyle Diamond Mine, Yeah, probably when I was about 16. How'd that go for you? Yeah, I guess it was, it was you know, y- your expensive lessons are often the most valuable. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't really understand the space and, you know, these oil and gas um, exploration companies and, you know, Ashton was an explorer as well. Um, you're in the lap of the gods a little bit. So I lost money out of probably yeah. my first couple of investments. And, um, you know, that's a space that I've, I've never really understood or done particularly well out of. So we, we don't do a lot of it in here at OC. Your godfather wasn't selling his stock. You don't think it was <laughs> well, that sort of, wasn't that sort of a stock well, broker, was he? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully he was getting his own. Well, hopefully not for him. <laughs> <laughs> and what about uh, what about professionally? Who were your big uh, yeah your first professional influence that really made a mark on you? Yeah, I guess I mean again in my in my professional career I haven't had a lot of mentors. I mean, but in my first job in the Australian market I came back from working overseas um, at UBS in the derivatives department. Finished my my law degree at Melbourne Uni. I got a job at Ostock Stockbrokers as a sell-side researcher and my boss at the time was a gentleman by the name of David Perry. Who David was sort of um, more of the sort of intellectual type, um, you know, very good from a macro perspective. He, Ostock back then was sort of a small cap broker, did a lot in the tech space, um, some up and coming businesses, um, some famous ones later on like ABC and Timbercorp. But David was bright enough to, uh, he took all the boring industrial businesses and gave me tech. And it was a tech boom. So, yeah. you know, that was exciting for me. I joined in 99 and these things just kept going up. And um, he sort of mentored me from afar. 
um, you know, he's a conservative guy. No one wanted to know his stock. Everyone wanted to know mine because they were all going up. And, you know, I thought, geez, this, this investment game is pretty easy. But ultimately, you know, we all know how the uh, early 2000s tech boom ended. So, um, you know, and he sat me down later on and said, I, you know, I, you coming, I thought it'd be a good baptism of fire for you, you know. You know, it's great to get the desk behind you and everything, but, you know, ultimately companies need to have earnings and profitability to to sustain their valuations, and that's ultimately what happened. So, um, Did know, he give he, you that advice after that all crashed or well, before? Well, you know, he, he was sort of, you know, quietly, um, didn't say too much about it during, during the boom, but um, afterwards, it was probably actually after I left the business because I left after about two years to join OC Funds. So, yeah, um, yeah David... Um, Certainly played it pretty well and, um, you know, gave me some good advice for the journey as well. And your title, OC Funds, is Head of Investments. Yeah. Talk me through the OC Funds management philosophy. Okay. Um, so I've been Head of Investments here for about 10 years, um, appointed during the GFC, which, um, you know, a bit of an uh, interesting time as an investor. Um, very much a bottom-up stock-picking approach. So... Um, great believer that um, if you can't understand the key drivers of the P&L, cash flow or balance sheet, don't invest in the stock because if you can't understand those key drivers, you can't um, forecast the earnings and if you can't forecast the earnings, it's very, very different to, to value. So, you know, it's more about, for me, it's more about investing as opposed to speculation. So, you know, if a company's opaque or you can't understand the key drivers or forecast the earnings, you're speculating and not investing. So very much that bottom-up approach. Um, we spend a lot of time out of the office visiting the companies themselves, um, their competitors. We've built up um, big networks in the unlisted space to sort of cross-check um, assumptions. Um, you know, we're not... I'm not a great believer in sitting in front of a PC and building a 20-page spreadsheet. It's more about getting the key inputs right, um, build a simple model, because if you're using consensus inputs, you may as well just use consensus earnings yeah. forecast. So really get in there, understand the nitty-gritty of the businesses, get to know the management, um, you know, speak to their competitors and um, invest within your circle of competence. And so in terms of your circle of competence, are there certain industries where you sit down and analyse a company and you just feel really comfortable straight away? Yeah, again, um, probably comes back to where I've had the greatest experience of success. So, you know, simple retailers or, um, you, know, you know, even mining services businesses or, you know, we've had some success in tech over the years. As, as long as we can actually understand how they, you know, generate their earnings um, and what's driving the earnings, then, then I'm comfortable investing. Um, things like biotech, yeah. uh, we don't really do. Um, you know, we've got our micro cap fund where there's a sleeve where we can invest in a hot IPO, for instance, for a, for a catalyst driven trade. But, you know, I'm not a scientist, nor is anyone on my team. Yeah. Um, you know, regulatory approval can be uncertain, um, patent um, uncertainty. Yeah. You can have a, a, a company that sounds great on paper, gets to a phase 3B where the FDA gets knocked back and all of a sudden stocks down 80%. That's, that's permanent loss of your investor's capital that you're yeah. unlikely to make back in that stock. So that's what we're trying to avoid. Like situations where you wake up one day and there's an announcement and there's permanent loss of your investor's capital. And, you know, we're, we're pretty transparent with what we do and we write quarterlies and monthlies and speak to our investors and having to explain to them, you know, why you thought this was a great investment, but you, you really had no um, background or, you know, frame of reference yeah. to work out whether they're going to get approved. We, we try and avoid that sort of thing. So is there a balancing act between, like clearly when you're, you're running a fund that need to 
um, protect the, the funds you've got under mm. management is, is really important. And yeah. then there, there's certain uh, elements around uh, long-term investing success. We, at times, those two issues conflict with each other. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, small caps, capital preservation is quite important yeah. because I think one thing that puts people off the smaller micro-cap end of the market is this perception around risk. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's a risky part of the market, therefore I don't want any of my capital invested in there. But if, you, if you're sensible about screening it um, and, and sticking to your circle of competence, then, you know, I think you can avoid a lot of the, the you know, the so-called stock blow-ups in that space that put people off. So, you know, every year if you look at the index and what's gone right and what's gone wrong, there'll be a bunch of things down in the, the, you know, the bottom quartile that we haven't invested in because they were opaque, you know, maybe they were biotechs or um, early-stage mining companies that, you know, didn't... didn't um, have drilling success and we haven't invested likewise there'll be a couple up the top end you know that um have come in um you know they've they've hit you know two percent gold or um you know they've got an fda approval but for us it's more about uh, you know if you if you can minimize your downside risk um and the stocks you invest in you get mostly right and the things that you don't get right when they go wrong, you, you deal with them quickly and effectively. You should be able to get a reasonable return over the cycle. So you don't have to get everything right, but if you can minimise your downside um, by, um, you know, just being prudent and sensible, I think you, you've got a good start in small caps. Yeah, I hear the same thing about the the, um, the risk and how risky micro cap and yeah. small cap stocks are. In a way, I think it's hard to argue against the liquidity part of it. When mm. things go wrong there, in particularly in the micro cap sure. space, there is just no liquidity. Yeah. And, and that's that's a risk if you're a forced Absolutely. seller. But I, I sort of feel, well, particularly from my perspective, with small businesses, they've often got one business unit that you've got to get your head around, yeah. often limited currency risk. Yeah. In, in a way, um, and your access to management as a small investor is much greater. In a way, those things greatly mitigate the risk compared to a, a huge company with 12 business units in different currencies and you know for someone with the size of a brain for me yeah um, i mean you feel less risky you're spot on chris from that perspective like and that's what i love about small and micro cap investing and that's why i've always gravitated towards that end of the market because you're quite right you you've normally got a business often with an entrepreneur yeah. who's, who's founded it smart guy built a team around him uh, you can get in there, spend time with them, understand the nuts and bolts of the business. And and the operating leverage off a small business is much greater than, a say, a top 100 stock. So you go in there um, and if you're successful, um, you know, the profit can grow materially and you, you can actually make a decent amount of money. I mean, you think, think of um, some of the big cap stocks like, you know, Cochlear, um, REA Group, both started as companies sort of 100, 200 mil market cap mm. and... Um, if you get in there and get the right management team um, in, in a scalable business model, you can make a lot of money. And I guess, you know, there's so many different alternatives in terms of your investment universe. Mm. I mean, looking at the top 100, you know, half the top 100s, um, 50% of it's in the top 10 stocks. If you look at the small cap universe, even, you know, it's only 15% in the top 10. And, you know, there's probably about 400 companies out there that we consider part of our broader investment universe. So... You know, it just gives you a great opportunity to go out there and kick the tyres with management, um, understand the businesses, and where you're not comfortable, you know, walk away. Yeah. 
So talk me through the investment process for a, a, a typical uh, investment here, how you come across it, um, what sure. sort of diligence you do. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we've very much got an open door policy. Um, you know, we kiss a lot of frogs. We'll see businesses that we don't think there's much prospect that we'll invest in because you, you never, A, you never know, and B, you don't know what you're going to learn about another industry or another business that might help you currently or down the track. So firstly, you know, we, we try and keep our um, information networks as broad as possible. Um, maybe we talk about our small cap fund because the, the process yeah. is slightly different than the micro cap. Our, our more conservative product, uh, the stocks have to be profitable and cash flow positive in the first instance. So looking out a year, um, that's our initial screen. So that gets us down to probably, as I said, 400 stocks that we consider part of our broader investment universe. Um, you know, we, we don't do businesses that are opaque or um, we, we can't understand the key drivers. Um, we don't do single commodity, single mine resource stocks. Okay. Um, the reason for that is, A, a lot of them are not profitable. They're an expiration um, feasibility stage. Um, secondly, single commodity, single mine, some, you can have the best management team in town, but if something, the commodity price goes against you or there's a flooding event or a roof collapse, you can go out of business. So we get exposure to that space through the high quality service providers who have you know, multiple mines, multiple commodities, take or pay contracts, that sort of stuff. And we don't invest in companies where we, we don't get decent access to the management and an ability to go in and understand the strategy. So. You know, if it's one of those so-called public-private companies, you know, where you've got an entrepreneur who owns maybe 70%. Yeah. We, we, we can't really add any value if we're, if we're not getting access to the business and the, and the people running it. So that's a, that's our initial screen. That gets us down to, as I said, you know, 400-odd stocks. Then we do an operational risk assessment, which looks at risk in six key areas of the business. So mainly um, qualitative, so quality of the management, skin in the game, um, do they act ethically in the interest of their shareholders, that sort of stuff? Do they under-promise, over-deliver? We look at the business model itself, if it's proven and sustainable, reliance on suppliers, competitive advantages, that sort of stuff. We look at the operating history back 10 years. You know, if it's increased its profit every year for 10 years, it's normally a sign it's a good quality business through the cycle. We look at the industry structure, so, you know, is it one of these um, disruptors that can grow market share really quickly, or is it getting disrupted? So, you know, think, REA in the early days where it's getting the eyeballs and versus say a Fairfax that's losing it. So we look at that, we look at the financial history, um, EPS, KGARs, return metrics and um, those sort of things, it gets a score out of 100. Anything that scores under 50%, we don't even do valuation work. We, okay. we consider it too risky yeah. for us to invest in. Um, the 50%, the, the stocks that get through that process, which is about 200, we then do valuation work. So again, that simple bottom-up approach. Make sure you understand the key drivers. Um, you know, come up with a forecast and, and then come up with a valuation. So, you know, we don't try and make it too complicated. Yeah. Like, you know, small caps, um, often difficult enough forecasting out three, five years, let alone 10 years. So DCFs are difficult in our space. Yeah. Like, don't you, I mean, I believe most people look at, you know, relative valuation metrics, whether it's a simple PE or an EVD, but da. Um, so we're, we're sort of using relative metrics. So say we're looking at a um, super retail group, we'll look at the other retailers and where they're trading, whether this should be trading at a premium or a discount, yeah. that sort of stuff. So again, we try and keep it relatively simple. Um, what sort of discount do you want to pay to the value? I mean, yeah. I know the answer is as big as possible, yeah. but what sort of discount to your valuation are you comfortable with starting to make an so investment in? So what we do, we, we have a, a matrix. So companies get scored 
depending on their um, expected return, which is the valuation upside. So that's um, the the difference between the share price and our valuation plus the 12-month capital return, yeah, 12-month dividend return rather. Um, anything that scores under 8%, we screen out because ultimately equity is a risky asset class. Yeah. So we, we figure people are better off defaulting to, to holding cash. Yeah. Um, so if it scores 35% or above, it gets a Category 1 and it, it, it ratchets down. Yeah. So we, we trade that off against the operational risk assessment score I was talking about earlier. So if it's a really high quality business, it might score a 1. If it's a lower quality business, but it scores above 50%, it scores a 4. So um, I guess... Um, in a simple example, a business that scores a, a one, so really high operational risk yeah. assessment, that we think has got 20% valuation upside, will be held in our portfolio at a, at a higher weighting yeah. than a company that scores a four and a 20% valuation upside. So take a Katmandu, you know, might just screen through, we think it's worth 20% more versus, say, an REA, um, you know, 20% upside. We're much more willing to hold... REA at a higher weighting because it's a much higher quality business, less things can go wrong. Yeah. So that's sort of, we trade off that risk and return under our process. So your ticket size is more related to the quality of the business versus the valuation gap? It is um, to an extent. So even if you've got a, a lower quality business that screens through, the highest weighting we can hold, it's about 2.3%. Yeah. Um, the unicorn in, in the small cap universe, we could hold a, a, a company that with a 35% plus expected return and a one operational risk assessment at 8%, it's the unicorn, it never happens. Yeah. Like, so our higher weighting stocks are around 4 5% of our portfolio. I, I guess, um, you know, we don't take big swings. I, it's come from probably one of the learnings I got out of the GFC and uh, indeed investing over 20 years. You're not always smarter than the market yeah. and things can go wrong, particularly in the smaller end of the market. And um, you know, if you get a downgrade in the stock and you've got it at 8%, um, you know, it can get pretty ugly. So, um, you know, coming back to that sort of capital preservation, um, you know, our, our biggest weighting stocks are around 4 or 5% of the portfolio. And do you have an investment committee? Uh, we, we have, um, so I'm the head of investment. Yeah. Um, we've got three analysts. Um, so we've got a really good, stable, uh, experienced team. Um, the, the, the two other senior analysts and myself have been working together for over 10 years. We've all got equity in the business. Um, we, we make decisions as a team. Yeah. Um, I have the final say in the investment decisions. We have a risk management committee, so which sits over the top. So it's actually a top-down um, macro overlay. Yeah. Um, like, like a lot of boutiques, we, we talk about, you know, the process I've talked to you about is pretty bottom-up. Yeah. You know, going out, kicking the tyres, building forecasts. But as you know, the world can be pretty macro-driven. Yeah. And um, I guess the thing that really um, kicked that in um, for me was the GFC when, yeah. you know, take the mining services space where you had all these companies in that space that had full order books with, you know, tier one counterparties and they were all flying. Um, credit markets started to freeze. They all started going down and you go to Perth and you, you go and see them and they'd say, oh, you know, you guys on Wall Street, you know, you know, um, Sydney stuff, you don't know what's going on. Our businesses are fine. We've got full order books. Look at our contracts. Yeah. But what ultimately happened was the credit markets froze. So their counterparties, be the big mining companies, couldn't fund the projects or cancelled them. Yeah. And even though they had a contract, you know, they were broadly written and, you know, you're going to go and sue your biggest... Yeah. You know, you're going to sue BHP or yeah. Rio for specific performance. Cause if you do, you're probably not going to get another a, a deal out of them down the track. So... 
um, you know, if you not weren't looking at the macro and what was happening from the top down with credit markets, you, you could miss the wood through the tree. So we implemented a risk management committee, which meets once a month. Yeah. It just talks about global macro. Yeah. So we and regulatory stuff and domestic macro. So we put the portfolio aside, and we'll go through all the sectors, the the gigs codes, and talk about you know, do we want to be overweight, underweight, or neutral? Say consumer discretionary, um, mining. Yeah. Um, you know, tech, all those sort of things. And then we'll look at our portfolio and say, well, from what's going on from a, a macro and regulatory perspective, we're, uh, we want to be overweight this sector. And if we're underweight in our portfolio, it's probably a trigger to go back and have a look and see if we want to add some exposure or vice versa. Yeah. If at the moment we're overweight consumer discretion, I mean, we're really bearish on the consumer, maybe we've got too much exposure. Maybe we need to take some out. So um, that's, that's sort of a, a, a committee I implemented a bit over 10 years ago. Yeah. It's chaired by an independent um, chairman who's got a lot of experience um, in, in global macro. And, um, you know, it's just an oversight committee to make sure that we're not taking on un unnecessary risk. Yeah. So that, that uh, due diligence approach is, is very detailed, as you'd expect. What sort of time frame does it take to go from uh, an individual stock idea to being prepared to pull the trigger? That's, that's a... It's, it's sort of a good question, but it's a bit of a how long's a piece of string. Because sometimes, uh, I mean, the market's fluid and it doesn't wait for well, you. that's what I was going to get to. I mean, when yeah. you've got a cap raising opportunity, yeah. you've got, you might have six yeah. hours to make and a call. Fortunately, you know, I mean, I've been doing smalls for 20 years now, 18 at OC and two on the sell side. The Steve and Rob have been doing it for over 10. Dan's been doing it for like five or six. So we know most of the stocks. Yeah, okay. And we can, we have the ability under our process to act very quickly. Yes. Because the market doesn't wait for no, you. No, exactly. And it's, it's um, particularly interesting because I've spoken to quite a few guys who farmers built up over the years and become, you know, they've gone from, say, 200 mil to four or $5 billion yeah. fund. And what often happens is people become more bureaucratic. They go, well, we've got to put this committee in. Yeah. Um, we've got to put that committee in. And, and it can be the enemy of performance because, you know, a downgrade comes out and you own something, you've got to act. Because by the time you've had your committee and remodeled yeah. it and spoken to management, the stock could be down 30 40%. And, and getting back to your point about a deal, yeah. there's a placement in the stock you don't own. You've got sometimes a matter of hours to make a call. And we have the ability to do, do that. Yeah. If we don't know the business, we're unlikely, highly unlikely to invest. Yeah. I mean, IPO is a classic example of where, you know, you've got a business um, that, that's not valued efficiently by the market often. So we spend a lot of time in the DD on, on IPOs. Yeah. Um, but, you know, ultimately we can make a decision reasonably quickly um, and you have to, in yeah. my view, um, because... You know, bureaucracy often is the enemy of performance. And that's the art versus science of funds it management, is. old issue. It being is. able to make that call part based on intuition and what you've already got in your knowledge base. Yeah. And, and if I, you've got a liquid investment, you can then sell it as your DD is opening things that... Totally. And, and you know, sometimes we'll take a smaller position yeah. until we become more comfortable. We go and do some more site visits. You know, they hit their earnings. It's, I guess, you know, look, talking about football, there were guys who had great skills and there were guys who had good intuition and could read yeah. the game. That intuition and being able to read the market and, and, and trusting your, your intuition and gut instinct is a really important part of investing. Yeah. And it's that sort of inexact um, science that... Um, you know, researchers may not put that much of a premium on, but I think the guys who are good investment investors over a really long period, most or all of them have that feel for the market. And that's, yeah. that's a really important part of what we do. And so one day you'll 
walk away from OC Funds Management and uh, either go work for someone else or just manage your own money, how would you manage your own money differently if it was just you and potentially an angry wife on the, <laughs> on the hook if you lost money? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think I'd, I'd stick to our process that we use because to be quite frank with you, the, the returns from the funds, in the early days I used to do some investing in, um, you know, some of the stuff I actually don't do in the biotech, yeah. um, mining, you know, someone to ring up and say, this sounds great. And you go, oh, it's not a conflict for the funds, so yeah. I might put some money in it. And, you know, I've, I've over the journey lost money in those sort of things. Yeah. So um, now, you know, we put money in the fund and we invest that way. And I think that's, for me, that's the sensible way about going it. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to take the emotion out of saying, oh, you know, I might get a 10 bagger out of that this because more often than not in my experience you know they're risky speculative things and yeah i mean if you get the roll of the dice going your way you can make money but um you know in the early days i created some good tax losses investing <laughs> that way so um try and stick to to you know the circle of competence and what i know best i think yeah and so in terms of uh we talked about redemptions and the need sure. to manage that risk before in terms of lic's versus uh managed funds mm -hmm. Is there an advantage being an LIC and just worrying about performance and not around potential redemptions? Yeah, I mean, we looked at doing an LIC for our microcap fund. I mean, there are certainly some advantages in the sense that, um, A, the marketing commitment is probably a little bit less, although, you know, I mean, we're very transparent with our investors. So um, also, you know, if you go into a, a, a bear market, and people are trying to deleverage, you can get quite um, heavy redemptions in the small micro cap end of the market. Yeah. And not having to you know manage for redemptions and and, and you know being able to opportunistically use a, a stable pool of capital to go out and cherry yeah. pick good investments would would be to an extent beneficial. But I guess you also have to deal with most of licks in the small and micros traded a discount to NTA. Yeah. So, um, particularly in down markets, so you spend a lot of time actually holding your investors' hands and explaining to them that the fund's actually going all right. Yeah, so okay. there's trade-offs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, having that stable pool of capital has some merits, but for us, um, you I know, guess your cost base would be higher if you're a leak as yeah, well. Yeah, th there's a lot more costs involved in doing them these days. That ASICs um, crack down, and the, rightly so. The funds have to bear all the costs of the raising, and um, you know you know, paying away the brokers, which which is the way it should be. But yeah. in the early days, that was all charged back to the unit holders, which okay. is why they all got, you know, day one, the NTA, NTA was 97 and a half cents, not a dollar. Yeah. Um, you know, people tried to make up for it with a free oppie, but that sort of, you know, the structure's changed and it's um, a lot more favourable for the investors. But, um, you know, I think, you know, in the downturn, you will get that discount to NTA, even if you're a, a strongly performed fund, typically. So... You know, it's, it's not something we're looking to do at the moment. And reading must be a huge part of your job. What news, yeah. What newsletters do you read or who are yeah. your favourite commentators to, yeah. to follow? Yeah, I mean, it is. And I, I read widely and, you know, you ne one of the things I love about this, Chris, is you never stop learning. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of very intelligent people working in the game. Um, you know, I, I love reading anything written by Charlie Munger. Yeah. Like, incredibly intuitive, bright. Um, you know, the psychological aspect and, you know, the mental models that he's got for investing, you know, you can learn a lot from. Um, guys like Howard Marks at, yeah. at Oak Tree, I really like Howard. He, he, he just 
explains things in simple, yeah. um, straightforward manner. Um, you know, I, I love that sort of stuff. Um, you know, obviously Bloomberg News, I'm on that every morning, yeah. seeing, seeing what's going on. And, um, you know, we get a couple of hundred emails a day. Um, I'm not suggesting I, I read them all, but a um, lot of information sources as a fund manager from, you know, your brokers and different networks. So reading's a big part of it. And it's a small network uh, of fund managers in Australia. Mm-hmm. There's certain fund managers where you're buying their shares yeah. or selling shares too, and you go, oh, this doesn't. Yeah. You're preferred if they're on the same side of the ten as me, or are you just used to uh, transacting on the other side to smart fundies that you don't worry about it anymore? Oh, look, you know, we all look at what each other's doing. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm a believer that our competitors are not just my fellow fund managers. My competitors are, is the wealth manager down the road who's got, you know, charging his clients a fee that, you know, potential clients are retail investors. So I talk to a lot of my peers who I consider, you know, good investors. Yeah. Um, we share ideas. Um, we talk about, you know, a conversation we've had with management. What did you make of it? Yeah. Um, you, you know, I mean, if you see one of them lodging a ceasing to be substantial, it raises your eyes if you, if you respect them. But, you know, we, we get good referrals from some of the fundies who are at capacity that I, I respect and we give referrals to, you know, other guys. So, um, you know, there are some fund managers who say, oh, it's my proprietary information. I'm not telling my clients what I'm investing in. And yeah. I'm, I don't want to tell, you know, my mate who works at, you know, a similar fund down the road because they might get some sort of an edge. I, I sort of think... You know, if, you, if you're willing to share information with people, they're more willing to share back and um, ultimately that can help, you know, give you a little bit of an information edge and, um, you know, drive returns for your investors. So I'm much more likely to, to want to share information yeah. than, than sort of keep it all huddled to myself. And when you look at how most retail investors invest, and it's a pretty important mm-hmm. question, it's hard to lump them all in one yeah. basket, what are some of the common lessons you see them doing that, um, that they get wrong? Yeah, I think, um, and we haven't touched on it because, you know, fundies love to talk about how they buy stocks and, you know, this is their process. Yeah. I think the one thing that most of us, particularly retail guys do, is they sell badly. Like, mm. you know, they, they, they buy a stock for X reason, um, but if the facts change, like there's a big earnings downgrade or management leave or, you know, something fundamentally changes about the industry, that they anchor to their yeah. perception of value yeah. and they, they don't sell it. They think, oh, you know, there's... I paid a dollar twenty. The stock's gone down to a dollar. I'll just wait for it to get back to a dollar. Yeah. But you know, with the facts change, your valuation changes. You should actually, you know, act on the information in front of you. So, you know, we we're pretty disciplined about how we go about selling things. Like yeah. if there's an earnings downgrade, we're not anticipating, um, and it's not brought about by one-off event, by a flood, or yeah. uh, and it's not completely rationally sold out. We typically sell out. I mean, one downgrade's often followed by another and another, yeah. particularly in smalls. I guess management sometimes don't give you all the bad news or they think they can turn things around more quickly. Um, retail guys, I think a lot of them don't sell when, when you know, the writing's on the wall, they hang on and, yeah. um, you know, then they look at their portfolio a couple of years later and, the you know, stocks have gone down 80% when they've had, you know, evidence that things aren't going to plan and they haven't taken the opportunity to sell. So I think that's one of the key things. I'm smiling because my dad's got the strongest anchoring bias of anyone yeah. I've ever met. Whatever he uh, he refuses to sell once it's gone down. But, yeah, um, yeah, it can be costly. Very good advice. Done. Next week on the show, we've got Scott Williams, the founder of Fifty One Capital. The thing that makes them successful is they lose small, yeah. and they your hit rate 
is you know 50 to 60 percent even the best investors don't get them all right so it's about losing small when you're wrong and winning big when you're big and if you can let your winners ride you will outperform all the time don't forget to subscribe to us on itunes and leave a comment or wherever else you get your podcasts from did you spend a lot of time analyzing past successes and, and picking up either patterns or, or losses and potential psychological biases yeah. that, um, that you guys have? Mm. Um, I guess not so much patterns, but if I look back on the things where, um, particularly, you know, in the early days on the buy side where, um, you know, we lost a material amount of capital, sometimes it goes back to that cell discipline Um you know, getting too close to management, yeah. fall, falling in love with companies. And, you know, it's hard because sometimes you, you invest in a company that does really well and, and management have, you know, made you a bunch of money. Um, you know, the, the, the company's gone from 100 mil market cap to 1.5 yeah. bill. Then they go and um, make a big acquisition off, offshore. Yeah. And, um, you know, the market starts to get worry about it. And, you know, there's talk that, you know, it's not performing that well and you go and talk to the business and they say, no, everything's all right. Um, and you want to give them the benefit of the doubt because they've done well for you in the past and then, you know, something, um, they put out an announcement that's not going that well. You know, in the early days, um, you know, some of those stocks that we've done really well out of, I've been prepared to give the benefit of the doubt and I yeah. think it can be costly. Like I, I look at some of the businesses that we lost money, like Slater and Gordon was an example. We, yeah. we made a lot of money out of that on the way out and they had a, good management team that we knew a, a lot of the senior people there through um, meetings over the years they made a big step out acquisition in, in the UK and there was um, a lot of talk about the cash flow and um, you know we ultimately got out but um, you know the stock had probably gone from from nine bucks to four bucks by the time we got out yeah um, you know I guess M2 Telecommunications was another one. We made a lot of money out of that on the way up. They merged with Vocus, you know, went and bought NextGen. Too much too soon. Yeah. Um, Want to give them the benefit of the doubt. So now, now when a company we own um, goes and makes a big offshore acquisition, it's, it's often a red flag yeah. because I, I empathise with management because, you know, they've done really well and they're, they're, they've gone from this little micro-cap stock that no one wanted to, to, to know um, to this big growth stock trading on a multiple of, you know, maybe 25 times earnings. And then if they stop doing things, you know, it's going to be a good dividend cash flow stock. Maybe it goes back to sort of, you know, 15 times market mold. Stock price is going to go down. So management's on the flywheel and they have yeah. to go and find growth. So, you know, we're, we're, I think, you know, that's one thing. It's a bit of a flag to, just to make sure when they do that big step out offshore acquisition that it's for the right reason and it's the right business. I wanted to finish with um, some questions about 2030. Yeah. I know you're not a futurist. No, that's um, fine. And neither am I. But in 2030, my son will be 18. Yes. And I am interested in chewing the breeze about uh, what life will be like when he reaches that age. Mm -hmm. And at a macro level, do you think in 2030 the US dollar will still be the reserve currency of the world? Um, in in a in a word, yes, yeah. I, 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 I do, um, quite firmly. I mean, if you look at the USD, um, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of talk about it's losing its luster, but, I mean, it still accounts for over 60% of global trade mm. and it's global reserves that uh, uh, settle in USD. I mean, look at commodity markets, um, most international trade still settled in US dollars. 
um, you know, m most of the, you know, the pipes of the financial system go through New York. So even if a, two, two countries are not transacting with America, um, they often settle in USD. And I guess, you know, there's been some countries trying to pivot away from their reliance on on the USD. And I understand that because it gives the US a lot of power yeah. from a, a political perspective, I guess, you know, in terms of, of leveraging sanctions. Yeah. Um, you know, if you leverage sanctions, say, um, let, let's take two years ago, they, they started leveraging some sanctions on some oligarchs in Russia and a couple of listed businesses. Um, it restricts their ability to settle in USD and, and um, you know, um, crimps the growth of those businesses significantly. So Russia's been trying to move away from the US dollar. You know, I think their reserves in USD have come down from, you know, 50-odd percent at the end of 2017 to 22%. Buying but a heap of gold. They're buying a lot of gold. They're trying to do more with China. Um, but ultimately, they, they, they deal in oil and commodities. Yeah. They have to do that in USD. And, and let's take, you know, China. Like, you know, I think 15% of their reserves are Chinese now, which is about, you know, people, people talk about China's growing, you know, that could be a reserve currency, but it's only 2% of global, you know, currency and reserves. And their printing presses switched on far more than the states have been in the last... Absolutely. You know, you know they've got capital controls. So, you know, even um, China, which is this rising superpower, um, you know, they're the biggest trading partner of a lot of countries in the world, but 70% of their, their, their trade is settled in USD. You yeah. Know? So what's the alternative to the dollar? Are we going to go back to a gold standard? I doubt it. Yeah. You know, China, people trust China less than the US and um, they don't have the infrastructure in place to be the reserve currency. And then what else have you got? You've got the euro. Yeah. But the euro can't even keep the currency union. You know, there's people trying to leave. So... I just can't see within that period of the time, um, you know, it's, it's, it sounds like a long time, but it's not very long. I can't see it changing. What do your macro guys talk about the liabilities the states have on their balance sheet and their, yeah, the increasing nature of them? Yeah. Um, and I mean, the debt they've got, it appears to me that this is not my area of expertise at all, but it appears the only way they're going to get out of that is by inflating it away by printing yeah, a I mean, of currencies. That. Does that sort of... Or they grow the economy, which yeah. is sort of, you know, I guess what the... Um, you know, it's it's still probably the most entrepreneurial country yeah. in the world. And, um, you know, you grow it. Um, you know, I guess you can deflate it to an extent. I mean, it's not perfect as a reserve currency. There's, there's certainly some wrinkles on it, but I just don't see an alternative, an alternative at this point. And, you know, cryptocurrencies... I don't see that as a viable yeah. alternative. Um, so at this point, the US dollar's here to stay. And now in 2030, will my son ever drive his own car, do you think? Or do you think they'll be <laughs> autonomous? Do you know, it's funny because I, I had the same... Well, I've got a one and two-year-old. Okay. And I said to my wife, he'd probably never get a licence. She laughed at me. I, I've actually been um, thinking about it more. I think she's probably right. He will end up driving his own car. Yeah. Um, autonomous vehicles are coming. Yes. There's no doubt about it. The time frame, I think, is a lot more extended than say 12 years i mean you've got a number of impediments and, and and different countries are moving at different speeds like if you look at somewhere like the netherlands or singapore yeah you know they've already got the infrastructure in place they've got laws that allow you to test autonomous vehicles on the road um more willing acceptance from um people in those markets to use autonomous vehicles but if you look at australia um you know our infrastructure is not set up yeah I guess one of the biggest impediments is also getting um, standardised technology. Yeah. Like, you know, you've got to get the automakers talking to the public policy makers and coming up with what's the standard 
um, technology we're going to use because you've got to get the cars talking to the traffic lights yeah. and the traffic. You know, there's a whole cars talking to each other. So until you get a standardised platform, which we're nowhere near arriving we at, we can't even get Wi-Fi in our house. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, that's you know, Australia's a mile behind on a lot of these things. So. Yeah. Um, in the 2030s, I think maybe you'll see some autonomous sort of ride sharing, maybe some taxis, that sort yeah. of stuff. But I think, you know, having a purely autonomous fleet and, you know, our kids, um, firstly, using an autonomous vehicle or even taking it to the next step, um, being banned from driving, I think that's, you know, maybe 40 years off. Yeah, but, gotcha. I mean, the great thing about technology is, it moves a lot quicker than you think. Yeah. So things can happen quickly. You know, Moore's law things. You know, computing power expands every couple of years. So I guess um, we, we don't really know the yeah. answer, Chris. But my, my sense is that um, 2030, there's it, it's not going to happen. It, we're just not going to get our act together that quickly. Yeah. And lastly, uh, artificial intelligence is going to yeah. play a big role in the future going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, by 2030, do you think that will have smashed the jobs market? as some people are predicting? Yeah. Or do you think the jobs market will just evolve as it did when the introduction of computers came into the workforce? Um, yeah, I read a great book on AI um, called Life 3.0 recently. Um, but, I mean, there's always... Technology always causes disruption yeah. in the job market. I mean, if you look back on history and you think about, you know, when the steam engine came in or the Industrial Revolution, displaced a lot of jobs. Everyone was like, oh, we're going to be mass unemployment. But what happens is... Um, you know, the computer revolution. Yeah. People are like, oh, it's going to displace all these workers. But um, ultimately, it creates productivity, um, cost-cutting. Um, people have higher incomes. They spend the income, creates more demand, um, more jobs created. So um, I-, I think, you know, the coming age of AI will cause um, dislocation, will cause job losses, and some industries will benefit, but there's going to be huge job creation coming out of it. Yeah. And the jobs that you know our kids end up doing probably don't exist today. There's yeah. every chance of that. And um, you know, you think about what jobs um, are at risk, and you, you think of industries like um, you know your call centres, or you know even things like you know sewing or lawyers. I mean, I could get replaced, Chris. Like you know, there's there's AI-based um, algorithm and um, exchange-traded funds. There's one in the US that yeah. just operates purely off AI signals. They, they look at all the market announcements, all the tweets and all that sort of stuff. They form a portfolio. They're not like, going to replace bald, unemployed ex-footballers, yeah. are they? <laughs> so there's, 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 there's got jobs like that are at risk, but yeah. then you think, what, what, what's less at risk? I mean, you think of social workers or anything that involves yeah. um, empathy or um, intuition or creativity, a yeah. lot less at risk. And, and think about all these new jobs that are created um, from AI. There's got to be people to oversee it, technicians, um, you know, new data scientists. I mean, we're invested in... It's probably a good segue to talk about the stock in our portfolio. Yeah. Like, we own a business called Appen. Yeah. Which um, basically um, creates, collates and annotates data for AI-based... Um, tr- for training sets for AI. So, in, in layman's terms, it essentially um, teaches... Um, AI-based AI algorithm how to understand human behaviour. Mm. So I'll give you an example. Um, there's a, you go onto YouTube, um, you're looking at a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge and um, an ad for a dentist flashes up in the corner and you go, geez, that's a bit weird. How come there's a dentist ad on a bridge, Golden Gate Bridge? But uh, a dentist does bridge work and the AI algorithm can't distinguish between you know those, those sort of things. So 
Appen's got this crowd of data annotators that educates machine-based algorithms how to understand human behaviour. They've got a th- sorry, they've got a million people globally on their books annotating yeah. training sets for AI algorithms for people like Google, Microsoft. I think all the big tech companies, um, they're all using them to teach their algorithms how to understand human behaviour so you know they don't make costly mistakes. Um, you know, a while back, uh, on YouTube in the UK, the, um, the, the UK government had some some content up, and they a G Hardy type ad popped yeah. up. And they ripped all their inventory off um, YouTube for quite a period of time. Yeah. Cost cost them a lot of money. So um, that that's a million jobs that weren't there. Yeah. Um, you know, a couple of years ago. So there's a lot of different industries that are going to spring up. I mean, you and I could sit here and rack our brains, and we won't be able to come up with yeah. a third of them. So I think it's going to create opportunities. Um, People will have to upskill, absolutely, but you know that's the evolution of humans. So I, I think you know I'm, I'm a bit of an optimist on it. Yeah, beauty. Well, on that optimistic note, we'll uh, we'll wind up. Thanks again for for joining Masters of the Market. Pleasure, Chris. Thanks, Rob. Done. Thanks again to Rob Frost. It was wonderful to meet him and get to have some of his time and jump inside his brain and how he views investing. One of my key takeaways was his quote that if you can't understand the potential future cash flows of a business then you can't value the business and you're speculating and not investing. It's a great lesson for any young investor. Next week on the show, we've got Scott Williams, the founder of 51 Capital, a hedge fund based in WA. Once again, I'd like to thank the support given to us for this podcast by Think Markets. If you want more information, head to thinkmarkets.com or download their Think Trader app if you're looking to trade in currencies, commodities, indices, stocks, or CFDs. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review.